welcome to High Tea with Farah. This podcast is all about homeschool, nutrition, travel, and things that inspire and enrich me. Get cozy, get comfortable, and let's get inspired together. Hello, hello, and welcome to High Tea with Farah. Today, I'm super excited to have my teacher as my guest, Dr. Taylor. I've learned so much from Dr. Taylor about special education. Her expertise in education has left me rethinking if I want to pursue SPED as compared to multiple subject teaching credential. Dr. Taylor is an assistant professor in the College of Education and Integrative Studies at Cal Poly Pomona. Dr. Taylor is the principal investigator for a $1.1 million 2017 U.S. DOE Office of Special Education Program Personnel Improvement Grant. This grant provides scholarships for students wishing to pursue a teaching credential in special education or adaptive physical education as well as a master's degree. Dr. Taylor is also currently the co-director of the Integrated Teacher Education Preparation Program at Cal Poly Pomona. Her current research interests include maximizing student potential in K-12 education for a modern, diverse student population, effective teacher preparation, and effective new teacher mentoring. Dr. Taylor holds a PhD in education from Claremont Graduate University. Welcome, welcome, Dr. Taylor. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Of course, this is so exciting. So tell me a little about yourself and your profession. Um, oh, gosh. Uh, let's see. I was a K-12 teacher um, for 11 years. Mm-hmm. I actually started out in general education, like yourself. <laughs> um, and I spent about six years uh, teaching humanities at the middle school level. So I taught social studies and English. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a wide range of students in my classroom. I had you know, everyone from gifted students to uh, students that were new to the country and didn't know any English and um, students with IEPs. And I ended up um, working really closely with some of our special education teachers at the school site. And um, one of them eventually moved up to the high school. And so they recruited me and asked me if I wanted to take her position um, because I had really enjoyed working with them and with um, the special education students in my class. So basically, I attribute two of my very dear friends. um, I still am in contact with them with um, getting me into special education. And um, so then I basically um, took over. uh, So I taught what's known as mild to moderate. Mm -hmm. So students with uh, mild to moderate disabilities um, at the middle school level for sixth, seventh and eighth grade. Mm -hmm. And um, I did that for another um, about six years. So I guess it was 12 years total that I was in um, K-12 before I moved on to get my doctoral degree. That's amazing. That is super impressive. (laughs) I mean, I have honestly learned so much from your class. And, you know, I've been thinking about this so much if I want to go and pursue my special education, because I feel like it's not only going to help my community, but just society at large, you know, we need it. Yeah, no, and that's and that's wonderful, and that's one of the reasons I choose to teach the introduction class, um, because Dr. Van Boxel, who is one of my colleagues at Cal Poly, um, she and I love it when students come to us and say, "Oh, I took your class, and now I want to teach special ed," because okay. we feel like we're very passionate um, about special education, and and if we can get you know a couple of converts every semester, we <laughs> we enjoy that. Um, but yeah, special education, I mean, it's such a 
you know, worthwhile field to go into. And it's relatively new. If you look at the history of education, um, you know, it's only been on the books since 1975 officially. Um, And so now it's actually a lot of the teachers that went into special education in the 70s, early 80s are now ready to retire. And so, you know, we really need a lot of people to to step up and and take their place. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So um, tell me, like, what is a student with a disability guaranteed in the public education in California? Um, So we're governed by what's known as the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which is a federal um, document. And um, basically, um, every state has to provide these services to students. And there are are what we call six principles of IDEA or six tenets um, that we have to follow. And the first one is that it's called what we, um, in special education, we love acronyms. We have lots of acronyms. Um, so the first uh, principle is what we call FAPE, which is stands for free and appropriate public education. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to guarantee that we're not charging students for services mm-hmm. um, that they're receiving and that they're placed appropriately and that um, to the extent possible that they're in a public education setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, The second is that when we evaluate them for special education, we have to make sure that we're using appropriate assessments, that we're measuring what we're meant to measure, um, and that they're non-biased in regards to language ability, um, intellectual ability, cultural background, um, a lot of those elements. Um, So when we plan for an evaluation, we have to take those things into consideration. Mm -hmm. Uh, The third principle is that we offer students that have a disability that's affecting their educational progress, that we create an individualized education plan for them Mm -hmm. um, as a team, and the team includes um, the parents, and uh, that that's implemented in the school setting, and we review it every year. Um, and then we have what's known as LRE, which stands for Least Restrictive Environment. And something that we um, really work on in special education is we want to make sure that we're providing um, appropriate services to students, meaning we're not giving them too much support. So we're not, you know, holding them back, but that we're giving them um you know, the proper amount of supports, not too much, not too little. And so least restrictive environment um, implies that we're trying to keep them in general education as much as we we possibly can. Mm -hmm. And then um, the fifth principle is parent participation. Uh, So there's actually a section in IDEA that states that parents have a right to participate in all the process um, from when we first talk about the possibility that a student has a disability all the way up until placement decisions are made, the parents um, should be a part of that process um, and an integral part of the team. And then lastly, um, the sixth principle is procedural safeguards, Mm -hmm. which, um, you know, have to do with more administrative tasks. You know, it has to do with due process, um, that we are not... um, you know, we're not moving too quickly to place a student in special education. We're not taking too long. Um, due process is probably the largest one. And that, you know, the parents have had uh, time to review all the materials, just part of the procedures to make sure that, um, you know, everything according to the law is followed. Right. Wow. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. So um, I learned that there are 13 categories a student can qualify for special education. Please enlighten us. Okay, so there are a lot um, of different categories. Um, So a student, as much as we like to, as a profession, 
um, we like to not, you know, label students. Unfortunately, the uh, the federal law says that we have to um, to qualify them for special education. But um, so basically, a student can qualify for special education um, with any disability as long as it's impacting their academic growth, um, and that can be autism. It can be um, that they're deaf or hard of hearing. Um, They can have a developmental delay, which generally um, is between the ages of zero and eight. Um, They can have an emotional disorder or behavior disorder. Uh, Let's see, intellectual disabilities are another one. Multiple disabilities, these are more students um, the, that need a lot of intensive supports. Uh, they might have, you know, several disabilities. They might, you know, have cerebral palsy and autism or um, be deaf and, you know, have an intellectual disability. That, that would be students that go in the multiple disability area. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can have an orthopedic or physical impairment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also have specific learning disability, which is one of the most prevalent uh, which that's where we fit in dyslexia, dysgraphia, um, you know, those types of uh, learning issues. Okay. Uh, speech and language impairment, that's one of the other most, um, the largest categories. And if a student has trouble either uh, expressing their thoughts or actually articulating words, uh, they fit in that category. Um, there are students that have traumatic brain injuries, that's another category, and then also visual impairments. Um, and then the last category is other health impairments. And that's where our students that have like attention disorders um, or other health issues like, you know, really severe asthma that's affecting their school, um, their schooling, um, you know, things like blood disorders. Um, you know, there's a million things that could fit in that category. Right, right. So um, who diagnoses all of this? Is, is it just the, is it a psychologist? Is it a doctor? No, that's a great question. Um, so there are some that have to have a medical diagnosis. So if we are putting a student in the autism category, they have to have a medical diagnosis of autism. Mm-hmm. Um, we in the school system can say that the student is exhibiting autistic-like behaviors, but we can't actually say the student has autism because we don't have that expertise. Um, so for the category of autism, they have to have a medical diagnosis. Obviously, um, if they're deaf or visually impaired, they would have a medical diagnosis for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, it's more of the school deciding um, what category best meets the needs of the student. Okay. So usually at um, in a public school system, the student enters at the age of five mm-hmm. and say there is an issue that's happening. And so is the teacher observing this issue? Because many a times in our, especially in my community, parents are in denial about, mm-hmm. you know, the child needing any kind of help. Mm-hmm. What happens then if the teacher notices some kind of an, um, you know, that some kind of service that child may need? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, schools, especially with kindergarten, um, they're really good at, at teamwork. Mm-hmm. And so if a, if a general education teacher notices something that's a bit of a concern, mm-hmm. she may uh, bring it up to the parents at a parent conference, uh, you know, just a regular scheduled conference or, you know, just casually ask the parents questions if they've, you know, noticed the same thing that he or she is noticing in class. Um, And then based on that conversation, she may ask, you know, she may tell the parents, is it okay if I have the special education teacher come and observe them? Um, And so then, you know, they would have the special education teacher come in and and just observe the student, not interact with them, but just, you know, watch them for a little period of time and see 
um, if they think that there might be an issue there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it can go to, you know, a larger team of students, like what we call a student study team mm-hmm. um, or an MTSS team. And, you know, generally it's, it depends on how significant um, the concern is. Uh, if it's, you know, if it's very clear that a student may have an intellectual disability, mm-hmm. the school district is, the team is likely to move much quick, more quickly mm-hmm. than if, you know, there might, if, you know, there's an indication a student might have dyslexia, they may want to wait a while and see, you know, how it plays out throughout the year before making a decision. Okay, so how long is that wait a while? Because I have some students that are in the system and mm-hmm. um, they feel like they literally have to fight with the schools to get some of mm-hmm. the services. And I'm talking about charter schools for homeschool. The mm-hmm. child is already about seven and eight and then he receives services. Is that normal? or? So traditionally that was normal and that's what we called the wait to fail model. Um, we would say that, you know, oh, the gap isn't big enough between their achievement and um, you know, their ability. And we'd say, oh, that gap has to be bigger. Um, there has to be a two-year gap, like let's say in reading. Um, we can't get provide services until there's a two-year gap. And that was kind of the standard um, when I was in the classroom. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is that usually doesn't happen until fourth grade. Mm-hmm. And so then you have a student that is now two years behind, mm-hmm. and then it's very difficult to um, catch them up. Mm-hmm. So now what we're looking at is more um, like the tiered interventions that we talked about in class. We're looking at, it's called uh, multi-tiered systems of support mm-hmm. or response to intervention, where we're kind of looking at a student much more quickly, mm-hmm. um, like throughout kindergarten, first grade, and trying to identify, you know, does the student have an issue that we need to deal with, you know, relatively quickly? Mm-hmm. Um because the the earlier intervention we can have, especially with you know dyslexia and different um, learning disabilities, the better the outcomes for the students. So we don't want to wait too long mm-hmm. um, before providing services if the student needs them. Okay. So if a student is struggling in second grade with reading, and I mean um, just reading basic sight words, what happens then? Um, so basically, you know, we do now the schools are getting better at collecting data on students and that's part of the multi-tiered systems of support. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a parent can always ask to see those, um, those benchmarks is what they're called. Mm-hmm. So the school district will do, um, benchmark testing either like at the trimester, beginning of the year, end of the year. Um, and the parents can see those and there are parent reports that can be printed out so that the parents can understand what the data says. Mm -hmm. And it's perfectly acceptable for a parent to say, okay, I'd like to take this home and look at it for a few days. And then can we come back and talk about it? Um, Because a lot of times if a teacher just slides a packet of, you know, information to a parent, it's hard to process right there in the moment. Um, And so, you know, a lot of times if a student is significantly falling below proficiency Mm -hmm. in like reading basic sight words, um, you know, that's a cause for concern. And the parent has the right to say, okay, what interventions are available for my child? Mm -hmm. Um, Because we always want to try general education interventions before we start talking about special education, just to make sure, because especially like with students that are second language learners, it may just be that they need more time with the sight words. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they're completely fine. Um, So it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of, it, it is some advocacy on the parent's part for sure. Right. Okay. Um, So what can parents do uh, at home to learn about all the resources available and uh, who do they go to if they feel like their student, their child needs some help? 
Those are good questions. Um, so there are a lot of websites out there that um, can answer a lot of parent questions. Um, understood.com is a great one. That's, I, I think I, um, you know, pointed that one out to you several times in class. Um, it's a very parent-friendly website. It breaks down all the areas of disability, all the services that can be provided to students. Um, and so that's a really good resource. Mm-hmm. There's also another one called parenthub.org. Um, and that is also both of these, understood.org and parenthub.org are federally funded research projects. Mm-hmm. And so all the information on there has been vetted by the Department of Education. So it's good information mm-hmm. um, because, you know, a lot of times if we just Google things, um, yeah. you know, we're not always getting the best information or we get sent to a message board where people are just giving their opinions and, and that's a little harder to sift through. Mm-hmm. Um, but going to these, you know, vetted websites is really good. Um, there's another one called Rights Law. It's W-R-I. I-G-H-T-S-L-A-W. Mm-hmm. And that is a parent advocacy website. And it goes through all the special education laws in a very, you know, user-friendly kind of way. It's, um, it's an attorney, a special education attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, and teachers even use that website when they're not sure about, you know, um, what the law actually means. They'll go to the rights law website. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good one. Mm-hmm. Um, Parents have the right to request assessments for their students, too. Um, They can write a letter to the school district to usually they write it to the director of special education at the district level Mm -hmm. um, and they request assessment for their student. They say, these are my concerns. Mm -hmm. Um, This is what the school has done. This, you know, this is what's still happening. And so I would like them assessed for special education services. And then the school district has to respond within 15 days. That's amazing. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. That's great. Those are great resources. Yeah. A lot of times in our community, or just in general, I'm assuming that, you know, first of all, parents are stressed that their child mm-hmm. is not, you know, meeting their benchmarks or milestones. And then, especially if a child has a dyslexia or dysgraphia, he can't read or he has some speech delay, he doesn't know where to go, who to talk to. And so they get confused. That brings me to my next question. Do you have any information about homeschoolers? So homeschooling families go through a charter school. And um, I think they do, the students do get IEPs, but they find it really hard to prove that their child has dyslexia. Do you have Mm -hmm. any advice for them? So um, it's interesting. And you had, you know, uh, we had talked about the homeschooling portion and I wasn't really familiar with. So I've actually learned something. I was doing some research before we talked and, um, it all depends on what the parent has opted for in California. Each state kind of has different rules about it. But in California, if the student um, is part of a charter school or an alternative learning or an independent study through a school district, they, they have the right to, um, you know, the law under IDEA. The only time that a student can't access IDEA through the public school system is when the parent has filled out um, what's called a private school affidavit, Mm -hmm. um, which is a little bit different. And that's when the parent is completely independently homeschooling their child. Mm -hmm. Um, That that means that the school district is not required to provide services under IDEA. Um, So I know charter schools, and to be honest with you, um, you know, there's, we could debate charter schools. That's a whole nother (laughs) conversation. Um, But, you know, I, 
anecdotally, and there is some preliminary research saying that, you know, parents at charter schools are unhappy with their access to special education services. Um, There isn't always a special education teacher on staff full time, um, you know, which complicates things. And, you know, even though they're an ancillary part of the school district, um, it's, it's hard. And so that would be something that, you know, I would want to, as a parent, I would want to get the special education director of the school district involved in. Mm -hmm. And that would be where I would write that letter and say, you know, I need my student assessed. This is, you know, the school we're going to, this is, you know, the situation, um, because that there is a lot of gray area with, um, with charter schools. Um, so yeah, that would be my best advice is to go that route. Got it. Okay, great. Honest. Great. Um, so how do you build trust with families to be allowed services? Well, um, gosh, that's a good, that's a really good question. Um, I think throughout the whole, you know, when I, when I first started relationships with parents, with families, um, it was a lot of communication, very open communication, being available to answer questions, um, making sure if I needed a translator to communicate with the family, that that translator was always available and that they understood special education terms um, because there's a lot of, of fear in some cultures about having a student identify for special education. And so it's really important that the translator, you know, understands those special education terms because sometimes, and I've had this happen, the translator will use, you know, an al- an alternate word that sounds okay. worse um, and kind of terribleizes the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so just those little points along the way and, and being open to whatever the family needs, you know, if it's meeting with both parents, if it's just meeting with mom, um, you know, and really kind of just having an open dialogue, I, you know, is really works. And, and being honest with families, I think is really important. Um, you know, it, it goes a long way when you say to a, a parent, you know, I'm not sure the answer to that, but I'll find out and get back to you yeah. um, and then have follow through rather than, you know, kind of making up an answer as you go. Um, you know, in the 12 years that I was teaching, I I only had one family refuse to have their student assessed for special education services. Mm-hmm. Um you know, for the most part, we were able to kind of come to a consensus. And sometimes it took, you know, maybe a meeting, you know, with the principal, sometimes, you know, having a person in that position of authority come and say, look, this is what we think is best for your child. Um, You know, sometimes that that was the route to go. But um, yeah, you know, it's, it's a lot of trust building through communication, I think. Right, right. Um, Oh, my gosh, those, those were some amazing gems that you just dropped here <laughs> you know we're we're Mike we're just at a loss we don't know who to go to who to talk to our kids are enrolled in a school system a lot of us you know especially the immigrants and refugees in my country in my uh, community are new to this country so they're already you know feeling really um, you know isolated and lonely and then their kids have some of the other issue and they go into the school and then they just they're lost they don't know who to go to and many a times um, you know I remember one family telling me that oh you know my 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 son has an IEP but don't tell anybody about it Mm -hmm. and I was like 
why not? And they're like, because, you know, it's taboo. We don't talk about these things. Right. And it's, it's so scary. And I said, oh my gosh, are you serious? And she's like, yeah, we don't talk about it. You know, he's eight years old. He has an IEP and um, I don't even know. And the mom said, I don't even know what that means, but it's just taboo. And it's, it's danger. It's scary. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, and to be honest with you, I didn't find a problem with it, but again, I, my child doesn't have, you know, an IEP. So what advice would you have for somebody whose ch- child has an IEP? And have you ever come across a situation like this? Oh, lots of, yeah, lots of times. Um, I remember I had one student from Japan and his mother was terrified that they would go back to Japan and he wouldn't be allowed to go to school um, because, you know, he had an IEP here in the United States. And, you know, a, a lot of it is just, um, you know, some of it is just education. And, and you know, like I mentioned, that communication piece is, you know, you have to remember that we as parents, we're always framing our thoughts about our child's education around our own experiences in education. And, um, you know, a lot of that is just talking, talking through that and saying, well, you know, here, this is what, you know, in the United States, this is what this means. You know, your child still gets to go to school. They still get to go to school with their brothers and sisters. They're going to get more support. They're going to, you know, be able to achieve more with that support, Um, you know, and, and talking about, you know, other students that have been successful, sometimes it's connecting them with a parent in the same community, mm-hmm. um, you know, who has a child in a similar situation. And so they can share their, um, their experiences, but it is completely overwhelming. I mean, I speak English and went to school in the United States and I, my older daughter had an IEP when she was in preschool for stuttering and it was completely overwhelming. And this is my background. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and a lot of it is, you know, you have the right as a parent to say, I need to take this home and have somebody read through it with me, or I need to take this home and think about it. And, you know, you don't ever have to sign anything or agree to anything mm-hmm. right there in the moment. I mean, you know, you, you can certainly bring it back to people that you trust and, and talk things through before you, you know, you make any decisions. That's awesome. Thank you so much. This has been so great. Thank you for all this information. Thank you for being here. Thank you, friends. Thank you, listeners. Dr. Taylor will be at my next episode and we're going to talk all about dyslexia. Get cozy, get comfortable, grab a cup of tea and see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. I hope you're inspired and it was fruitful. Until next time, connect, create, and continue on. You can reach me at High Tea with Farah on Instagram or at my blog at highteawithfarah.com. Please enjoy the frame drumming by Brian Hall.